JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline from the Indianapolis Star, he is Nate Atkins. So we'll start right here, and I know you've probably been inundated with questions regarding your story of Michael Pittman Jr., his quote about not being, again, paraphrasing here, an integral part of the offense. 75 yards on a catch and run for a touchdown, over 80 on two receptions, targeted five times. And I will say, I talk to Brad Spielberger every Tuesday at PFF here, and he says, legitimately Coaching-wise, there was a reason why, because oftentimes he had Denzel Ward, and he's, he thought that they were going away oftentimes from the playmaking ability of Ward. I, I, first, what did you think about his words? Was it just kind of heat of the moment after that disappointing loss stuff, or was there some legitimate disappointment in not seeing the ball more? Yeah, so uh, Michael Pittman Jr. is one of the fiercest competitors I've ever been around, one of the most emotional players, both in a game, after a game. It's just kind of the way he's grown up in this, the son of an 11-year running back who's kind of always had the weight of expectation on him as a five-star recruit, as a Blitnell Cough Award finalist, and then a second-round pick. So he, he wears a lot of things personally. And so for him, anytime they lose, anytime the Colts lose, they, it doesn't matter what the score is, the circumstances, what they're up against. He internalizes that a lot. And it's either, you know, something was, something was missing from his game, the way he was, you know, the way he was able to play, the performance he had. A lot of times he rips himself in these moments. You know, and in this one, it was just the, sort of the frustration of not being able to get this one done uh, as close as they got. And not everyone wore that in the Colts locker room. But for him, he certainly thought, you know, he's always going to look at it as what more could I have done? What more should I have done? And uh, so I think, but it very much is about this game and this loss and the fact that they lost. He doesn't do this after wins. And he was, you know, I think one thing that's been twisted a little bit or, or maybe not twisted, misunderstood about his comments is that it's not about his role this season, which he's, never complained about until Sunday. It was just about Sunday's uh, usage and the way that that, you know, resulted in a loss. And so uh, the way, you know, when he's looking at this, you know, he finished with two catches on five targets. He had the 75-yard touchdown. And I can see why people think, you know, he had the 75-yard touchdown, so he got a big play. And what he's, you know, the way he operates, the way he thinks is that he can do that on any play. He really feels that any slant pass – he can break a tackle and make something happen. Of course, it's not always going to happen that way, but that's the mentality he likes to play with. And I think he has a point on that alone about running slant passes and letting him do something in the teeth of the defense. 
And honestly, I think the Colts agree with them because when we talked to Shane Steichen on Monday, he had two regrets when he went back and looked through the game plan. And that was the situation where Miles Garrett had a strip sack in the end zone uh, because they decided to try and take a shot and do a slow developing route to go deep. And Shane said he should have thrown quick there instead of a slow developing route. Well, slam pass is a quick pass. And then he said uh, the next possession, when they they threw a screen pass on third down and it was incomplete, they gave the ball back and the Browns got a field goal. He said, I could have thrown a slant there. Uh, So very much. And then when we asked him specifically about Pittman, he said, you know, this happens in the league and we do have to find ways to get in the ball more. So Pittman has had a very strong role in this offense. And like I said, he's been very happy with it. But it did disappear on Sunday. And some of the reasons – were valid. I, the Colts were, you know, they, they wanted to correct the 55 pass attempts for Gardner Minshew in Jacksonville. They cut that down to 23. Obviously, that makes sense to avoid Miles Garrett, to lean a little bit more on Jonathan Taylor. Uh, but, you know, they, what they had done in other weeks, including the Jacksonville game, is sort of build an extension of the run game through Michael Pittman Jr. by uh, getting him some of these short passes, letting him catch it, you know, short depth of target screen passes or quick slants and seeing what he does with the ball as a yak player, as a guy who can break tackles. And that didn't happen at all in that game, really, until that final 75-yard touchdown catch. They tried one in the red zone uh, that that people – I think some people saw it as a drop. Really, it was a play that they had perfectly executed where he beat Rodney McLeod, but the ball's kind of up and behind him, and he tips it back to himself and wasn't quite able to haul it in. If he does, I think he gets tackled right away. But they, they did not give him any opportunities to kind of catch it and run with it. And, of course, it's hard against Denzel Ward. But what the Browns were doing is they were, they were not moving Denzel around with Michael Pittman. The problem is it looked like it looked like he was shadowed on him because the Colts kept running him out there, uh, you know, lined up against him. But Denzel was staying on the left side, from what I understand. And Pittman, they could be, and they were running straight man coverage across the board. So the Colts could have motioned guys around to pick any matchup that they wanted to go for. They did this with other players, with Josh Downs, and moments, you know, a couple plays for Alec Pierce, and then obviously, you know, they, mostly they leaned on the run game. But he, the cost of decreasing the passing volume and everything else that they did was they kind of forgot about a playmaker that they had used in every other game so far. So just relative to this one specific game, when everybody's looking through and figuring out what more could we have done, that was one area where Pittman looked at it and thought, you know, I could have done some more. And that's him wanting the ball in those moments, wanting to carry the team. And he's the type of guy that when he gets that opportunity, and if he doesn't deliver, he'll own it all the way. But he wants that opportunity and, uh, when when you know when they fall short, he's going to always uh, want a little bit more. Nate Atkins joins us. Oftentimes, uh, people will suggest, well, he doesn't create enough space, i.e., get open enough. How often, from what you've seen, is that the case? Yeah, it's interesting. Separation has always been an interesting thing to me because it's all very relative in the NFL, where not many that many players get that much separation. Of course, there's exceptions to that the Tyreek Hills of the world and there are certain offenses that are gorgeous at designing up separation like you know the 49ers of Kyle Shanahan or the Chiefs of Andy Reid but for the most part the average like the, the difference between the guys low in separation the guys middle in separation even pretty high is, is very very minute and it's also different based on the player a guy like Josh Downs at you know his stature needs 
arguably a little bit more separation because the catch radius isn't the same. Uh, the, the ability to kind of finish the contact, and that's not to take away from Josh. He wins in a completely different way with some gorgeous routes and everything and hands and everything else. But for Pittman, separation is never going to be his game, has never needed to be his game uh, the same way it is other players. Of course, it would help him. He would maybe – you know, ascend a little bit more if he's trying to be that top, top flight, number one receiver, more speed and more separation would, would get him there. But I mean, he's produced, uh, you know, he's been their leading receiver. Uh, you know, this is his third straight year of doing it and it's been shorter depths of target. And I understand why that uh, with some of the separation numbers leads people to believe he just doesn't separate. But the thing is they haven't outside of Anthony Richardson, they have not had a quarterback since Carson Wentz, uh, just a brief spell of Carson Wentz, that's the only time they've had quarterbacks who can really go down the field. And what Carson would do with Pittman that, that did create these downfield plays is when he would scramble out, yeah. hold the ball, and then throw it up. And I think with Pittman, he's one of those players where a 50-50 ball for most players, he he looks as more of like a 65-35 because of the catch radius, the experience going up and getting it, uh, just the strength that he gets to play through. And then, and then there's the fact that if he does catch it, he's not just immediately tackled. He can kind of finish through that and add yak in a way other players can't. So it's all kind of about you know the type of player he is. If you think about him more as sort of like the wide receiver version in a separation way of, of like these tight ends, you know, you wouldn't not throw to a to a star tight end just because his separation numbers don't compare to the top wide receivers in the league. It's just understanding that type of player and the way that he tries to win. Yeah, it's funny, too, and, and Nate Atkins joins us. Josh Downs, I think, had, what, six targets on on Sunday, which obviously just won more than what Michael Pittman Jr. had in that game. The other aspect of it is I know that going in they wanted to utilize their tight ends more, but you look at just how often they're able or can do that. It has been few and far between. Do they view this offensively as an issue? Uh, They definitely want more production out of that position. I will say on Sunday I really felt like they looked at the situation they were up against with Kylan Granson being out, still no Jelani Woods, and what they were up against in Miles Garrett and Zedaria Smith. And they more or less turned their tight ends into extra linemen. And you saw them stay in against Miles Garrett. Obviously, it didn't always work. He still was able to wreck the game, but that was, that was the plan. And they only got two targets, uh, and then somehow they only finished with one catch for minus six yards, which – Obviously, it's not acceptable. That has to be one of the worst marks ever for a position group in a single game. But it didn't keep them from moving the ball. Uh, but this is one of those areas where, like, what they needed, the offense became very boom or bust without some of those short depth of target, chain-moving type of plays. They were they were pretty much a, you know, a, run, game, a run game with Zach Moss and Jonathan Taylor. And then they got some explosive plays with Josh Downs and Michael Pittman Jr. And then they had four turnovers. So everything was very – Kind of hurt every play was it felt like was was very big either positive or negative or they could have used some of the more kind of boring standard plays uh, just just outlets to to throw the ball when when under pressure and that's it's one of the battles that they're in right now with the injuries they have at the position the youth at that position you know and being down to a backup quarterback in Gardner Minshew who you know he's trying to build chemistry find his his favorite guys and, and he's finding some good connections with the wide receivers. But, you know, he's got to get better at, and they, they know this. Uh, they pretty much said it this week. He's got to play better under pressure. And one of the ways that they can get him to do that is instead of immediately panicking at early pressure and either throwing the ball away or, 
or losing it on a fumble or something like that, look for one of those outlet players that may not be uh, the, the guy he's necessarily looking at first in the progression, but who's there to sort of bail him out of those situations. A lot of veteran quarterbacks will lean on guys like that. Part of it is he hasn't had consistent play out of a tight end to maybe build that. But that's what they have to have right now because they can't have – uh, the things that are happening right now, the moment that he gets under pressure. Hey, Nate, I know you guys didn't learn anything from Shane Steichen yesterday regarding Juju Brents, but I kind of want to get what you're thinking about. And certainly it, it seemed as if yesterday the expression was he's going to miss this weekend, if not more time than that. But what's the plan in that secondary, you think, moving forward here in the short term? Yeah, so we also Juju Brents left that game with a quad injury, and uh, I, I don't expect him to play on Sunday. I don't. The Colts do not expect him to play on Sunday, um, and we'll see after that. Uh, you know, it's it's an injury that, that could linger uh, for a couple weeks, but it also sort of depends on what they can uh, patch together in the absence, because obviously they are very very thin at that position. Were before that, but now they're down to a situation where. You know, Jalen Jones, the seventh-round rookie, will be their top outside corner, and he has impressed them, but that's obviously a, a, a bump. And then at the other spot, they're deciding what to do between, you know, do they play Daryl Baker Jr., who obviously got in some tough spots on Sunday, and he's played some and not played some and is kind of having a tough season, uh, but, you know, is there a more experienced guy there? Or do they go with a guy like Amir Speed? They just signed last Friday, uh, claimed off waivers from the Patriots, who's a rookie. He's going to have – three practices with the team. And I asked Gus Bradley today, is that enough to get a guy ready? And he said, well, we have to figure something out. We have to be flexible because of the spot that they're in. One of the things they have looked at and thought about as a staff is playing Kenny Moore at an outside spot and doing something else at the nickel. I know they've looked at playing uh, Nick Cross some at the nickel. He's trained there and they want to get him on the field. But more, they, they really love how Kenny's playing at the nickel spot. He leads the team in tackles for loss, and he's the communicator to those young players at those outside spots. So they don't want to mess with two positions right now. So I think they're going to do something at outside corner that involves I, – I would if I had to guess, I think it will be a mere speed playing more on Sunday just because of what they've shown us about their trust level with Daryl Baker Jr. But I, I don't – think it will be just one solution to it. I think it's probably likely a mix of uh, speed, Daryl Baker, maybe a little bit more of Kenny more playing an outside spot, maybe living in base as much as they can. And one thing they're going to have to do is just simplify everything they do on the back end for those cornerbacks so that, uh, that, that they don't risk too much. And so uh, it's just going to really stress the other pieces between the safeties, Kenny in the slot, obviously the, the front seven and, the cover linebackers, they're all going to have to kind of lift this up together. So it's sort of a, you know, committee approach to solving the problem. Either way, and we always doubt this, but either way, you think there's any, any interests with this Colts team as we approach the NFL trade deadline? That's an interesting question. I'd say like, if you think, take it back just a couple weeks ago, I think they were starting to really buy into this team, you know, being a lot better than they thought, possibly being a playoff type of team when they were three and two and they had, uh, you know, they, well, they were going, they, they beat the Titans to go to three and two. They had Anthony Richardson playing really well. And that's, I think part of why they got the deal done at that time with Jonathan Taylor. And if they were still in that situation, even at three and four, if they just had not pulled these games out, 
I, I mean, I think you, you would have to argue that the spot that they're in at outside corner, you know, why not give this team a chance? Why not bring in a veteran that, that doesn't, you know, that, that lets you see just how far this can go and then see, you know, there's so much payoff to the idea of Anthony Richardson getting a playoff game or getting these big time experiences late in the season. The calculus just all kind of changed with that injury to Anthony Richardson where it made this year. Not that it, not that they're not trying to win because they are, but it took them a little bit back to where I think they were, you know, back in the spring and the summer when they did not address this position when they needed to. You know, they Stephon Gilmore asked for a trade. They sent him out. They drafted three rookies. Isaiah Rogers Sr. got suspended for the year. They didn't replace him. They decided to just sort of make it an evaluation year. And that's kind of the spot they're back in, maybe in a more dire spot than they thought at the time. But at the time, they were relying on undrafted players anyway. So they're kind of in that same spot. So I I would be surprised if they make a move, uh, if they're trading for somebody. It just seems like it's it's not it's just not usually Chris Ballard's style to trade away a draft pick during the season, uh, you know. And, and if he was going to, I think they would need to be either a little bit better record wise or have that sort of upside at the quarterback position and that need to get him some bigger games. Whereas I just think the injury at that spot and, and now the piling injuries at at cornerback, not to mention you know right tackle with Braden Smith, I think it makes it less likely. Did Atkins of the Stars with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline? I, I certainly I, I would agree with you on that too. It's just kind of like playing through it. You know, you get the Richardson injury, you get uh, the last two games and losses and such too. It looks like Tennessee is trying to to tear it down a little bit right here. Uh, but um, yeah, it's I, I guess unfortunate. I mentioned this before I let you go. I think against New Orleans, this is going to be, um, you know, I mentioned Renaissance early on the show. This is going to be that type of game for Jonathan Taylor. It just kind of seems like we're on the verge now of Jonathan Taylor getting a lot and a lot more. I thought last weekend, Sunday, was the springboard. You agree? Yeah, for sure. In fact, I thought he should have played more in that game. I agree. Completely agree, yes. Yeah, he ended up getting the same, interesting, the same number of carries, same number of snaps as Zach Moss. But Shade Steichen has said that his philosophy is he's going to ride the hot hand at running back. And I just think right now you have to say that Jonathan Taylor with the way he played on Sunday. And that's why I thought he would have played more uh, when they went to Zach Moss and late in that game. Uh, I thought they could have kept, kept Taylor in then, but maybe it's possible that they just they just didn't feel like he was quite at that workload level. But they've been increasing it so much each week that between the time he's had now of, of you know three or four weeks of practice to build up, and then the skills he's showing out there, we're seeing some of that old 2021 vision and cutback and, and ability to finish through contact, and then the upside in the passing game two straight weeks. I think they need that to, to launch explosive plays you know, in the run and pass game. And also that's a way to get away from some of this turnover issue is that um, not that it's, there's no risk ever of, of Jonathan Taylor fumbling, but certainly it is a lot, lot safer to have him carry the load and carry the ball than anything else that they're doing in the pass game where two straight weeks they've had, you know, eight turnovers and they've all involved, you know, the quarterback, they're all, all turnovers by the quarterback and, it's just a spot that their backup quarterback right now is in, uh, you know, and at this point in the season. So I think Jonathan Taylor's yeah. got to he's got to be the guy to carry the load, create the explosive plays, and get them out of their own negative plays. Because really, you look at this offense; they're the only offense in the NFL that has scored 20 points in every game. 
which I think is a huge testament to Shane Steichen and how an improved offensive line and how much a lot of this is clicking. But the turnovers are the thing that they have to, have to, have to fix. And I think Jonathan Taylor is sort of the key to that. Uh, how interested are they in you know taking to the league you know a flag or two down the stretch here what type of response will they get and will we ever know anything regarding that or will all parties here ultimately just move on i guess that also is related to how pissed were they after it did you really get a feel that they were certainly not to the level of the fans but in disagreement with those pair of flags down the stretch one of which really cost them the game yeah, so they send some plays to the league every week, interestingly enough. It's, some of them are very innocuous, but it's just things that they want to kind of understand a little bit more and watch for that will play into how they use their players. And so as they're teaching these young cornerbacks and they're trying to grow from this game, they were gonna, they want to do that anyway with those flags, even if the answer you know, is that, that they were correct calls. Yeah. Uh, it's possible the league, you know, it's once in a while the league will come out and, you know, they'll say that the call was wrong. That's really all that ends up happening. It's not like they changed the score or anything like that. But Not like uh, the, in the NBA. They don't do it every time. Like the NBA always has that final two minutes report and you end up going, they want to be transparent, but you end up going, man, I didn't need to hear that. Yeah, exactly. They they don't do really as much of that in the NFL. Uh, but uh, interesting, I asked a lot of players in the locker room, mostly just kind of kind of off to the side, just to get a sense of how kind of upset they were or not upset. And I just didn't – I don't know that they agreed with the calls, and certainly some of them did not. But I didn't sense that they felt like this was a game stolen from them. And I've covered three teams, and, I, and I've been in moments where they have, and they flat out come out and been outraged and felt like they did everything to win, and it just wasn't there. And it's not to say that they thought the calls were, you know, right to make in the moment, or you know that 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 they didn't uh, that they couldn't have gotten more help. But I think they understood that like they did a lot of things in that game to lose it when they should have won between the four turnovers. And between just how thin they got on that back end, I mean, on that same drive, they gave up a 30-yard completion on third and 10 to P.J. Walker to extend the drive. And on those penalties specifically, you know, regardless of kind of where you're at of whether they were the right call, it still was a cornerback who who wasn't in the, the best spot, you know, literally in terms of keeping his hands off of players, looking back for the ball. But also, like, this is a player that they had, you know, early just a couple weeks ago benched and put behind two rookies, and then he's thrown out there in a in a premium position, and the Browns are going right at him with a pro bowler like Amari Cooper. You know, like, they knew they were going to have to try and hang on. So this wasn't a situation where they felt like this was a game in the bag, it's over, and then the refs pulled something. So it's unfortunate. They're frustrated. They wanted the calls. Obviously, but I I just don't think that that's it's also not really the temperament of this team where they really taken I think Shane Steichen's personality where they just kind of put their heads down they grind and they're going to accept the results as they come and they're going to learn from them and so I think they're really trying to use this moment as frustrating as it was on Sunday as more of a learning teaching tape for young corners for uh, the rest of the offense to prevent turnovers to not open the door to a situation like this. And I think that's a pretty mature response. Yeah, well, it's a damn good thing I have immaturity to a level for all of us right here. So it's a good thing, Nate, because <laughs> well, I, I, I would agree. Like the, 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 uh, the initial uh, illegal contact 
I had the same thought, and especially after watching it over and over, as Shane Steichen had reaction-wise on the sideline. And I, he wasn't putting his head down and grinding. He was pissed, uh, and rightly so. And, and this is just me, right? Watch that play over and over again. And while you could have flagged both on that play if you want, and certainly Daryl Baker Jr. did, this is the illegal contact one, the thing that most stood out to me, in a league where all of these wide receivers cry and whine and do their flag impression needs to be thrown after every single play, Amari Cooper in that moment thought the game was over and didn't think that there was necessarily needed to be a flag thrown his way. I just thought his reaction told the story on really how that call was and how that call should not have been made. That was me. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he when when it when it's a strip sack like that and ends that way, you know, again, that's a professional response kind of on their end, which is like, can you really complain about you know the contact that did or didn't happen when the play had no chance in the beginning? And I think that's the frustrating point from the Colts end is that you know you can go either way, I think, on whether the calls are right, but they just they didn't have to happen. I mean, they were going to get the strip sack anyway, and then the other play defensive pass interference, uh, you know, PJ Walker was not completing that pass. You just you just you just have to avoid being on the line like that. And unfortunately, they were on the line, and it and it didn't go the way they wanted. It stunk, is what it did, Nate. Hey, what are you writing about here? Midweek, and then obviously getting into the weekend of that matchup with the Saints. Yeah, I've got a story coming out tomorrow on just some of the stuff we were talking about with the cornerback position of how they're going to uh, kind of piece this together and, and kind of move on, at least in the short term, without Juju Brents. Uh, and then, you know, a little bit a little bit later this week, I'll have something on Kenny Moore uh, that I think will be pretty interesting. So uh, looking forward to, to diving into that. And I think he's he's had a pretty interesting season for a guy that, that uh, you know, really needed a rebound. Write it up, Nate. And if you ever need a certain level of immaturity, you know where I am. Gotcha. You need a yeah, little bit of a addition. Uh, all right. Well, uh I, I can be immature in my own ways, too, so maybe sometimes we'll, we'll pass the favor back and forth. Oh, brother, I appreciate you, Nate. Thanks, man. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Speaking of the New York area and broadcasters from Brooklyn, I believe, is our friend Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Hello, Brad. Hey, how's it going? Fantastic. Tell me, in terms of the numbers at PFF, the impression that you guys had on the Colts' offense against what was, prior to Sunday, that vaunted, stingy Browns defense. Yeah, obviously, outside of a couple of Miles Garrett, you know, freak show uh, type of snaps, he was held in check to a degree uh, by this offensive line, enough for Gardner Minshew to get the ball out quickly in space. Obviously, a breakout game for Josh Downs, the rookie wide receiver who was making plays all over the field, making players miss in open space. Um, and then you saw Jonathan Taylor, particularly this run defense for the for the Browns has been historically good to start of the season, um, you know, allowing a success rate of about 25%, so one out of four rushes 
were staying on schedule, um, and they were able to do enough on the ground as well. Um, it was impressive. This has been one of the best units in the league, and the Colts were able to score a whole lot of points. It's a Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus with us. I had mentioned yesterday that I think that the fires just – getting started and stoked with Shane Steichen using Jonathan Taylor. That's the way that it felt with me on Sunday. You too? Yep, definitely. I think it's only going to ramp up. You obviously want to be patient with that guy. You want to work him in slowly and not, you know, give him too many touches. But I'm sure we're a couple of weeks away from a classic, you know, 25-plus carry type game. When you mentioned Miles Garrett, a couple of freak plays, I guess we look back on the end of the half there and the end zone and that play call to throw it out of the end zone for Shane Steichen and the offense. And I've been so impressed with Steichen so far, but there is no doubt that that is one that he would like to have back because basically what he did is he invited that freak to come in the front door. He sure did, which is always a scary proposition. And, uh, you know, sometimes you do, uh, you know, there's an element of letting that guy be a free rusher. And as long as the quarterback is hot and knows to get rid of the football and to throw either into the blitz or around where the pressure is coming from, you know, you can kind of use it to your advantage. But, I mean, he's also a great athlete in terms of, you know, deflecting passes, taking balls off. Uh, I mean, he, he is, you know, like I said, a, a true freak show. Um, but, yeah, sometimes you can't get away with it. Uh, that was a scary one, though, no question. How did the, besides, you know, a couple of plays from Garrett, how did that Colts offensive line look to the numbers of PFF? They held up well. You know, like I said, this is not just a Miles Garrett defensive line. You also have very good players. You know, into Darius Smith, who they traded for this offseason, in Ugbo Karankwo, you know, obviously a former AFC South guy down with the Houston Texans, some good players on the interior as well. But, uh, you know, overall for the numbers, the Colts had a bunch of guys grayed out pretty well, um, you know, as purely as pass protectors. Uh, I'm still a little bit here. I'm trying to pull up the exact numbers. But, uh, you know, from my, from my uh, you know, watching view, I'd be, the most important thing for me, and it does match the numbers here, is the guard play. Uh, both Quentin Nelson and Will Fries, who's had some up-and-down games this season, uh, had pass block rates above 75. Both guys only allowed one quarterback pressure. Um, and, and Dalvin Tomlinson and Shelby Harris have wreaked some havoc. So the interior, I think, created a lot of good pockets for Gardner Minshew. You knew the edge rushers would win. The tackles that have some, some tough reps. Obviously, Freeland stepping in, uh, but the guards played really, really good football, and, and Ryan Kelly looked good in his return as well. Hey, Brad, I mentioned this as a further tease in the show later on next hour regarding the words of Michael Pittman Jr. in the locker room after that loss on Sunday. Um, he basically said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that, you know, I, I wonder if I'm, you know, a part of the offense or whatever. Five targets. He did have that 75 yard catch and run. Uh, one of his two receptions uh, on the day for the Colts. D- does he have a point, or is it one of those things where you go, well, if, if you want it more, maybe you should maybe create more of an open window for yourself out there? Which side of that are you guys on, according to PFF? Yeah, in this matchup, I think you got to be cognizant of who you're playing against. He drew a lot of coverage snaps from Denzel Ward, who is our highest-graded corner in single coverage, who's allowed the lowest completion percentage or one of the lower completion percentages in single coverage um, and one of the lowest yards per coverage snap allowed when lined up as a single coverage player over top receiver. So, I mean, look, he's one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. There's a reason he's a top-five paid guy at that position. When healthy, he is the definition of a lockdown number one corner. And we've talked a lot about Michael Pittman. I think he's a good player. Um, He's not going to win those type of matchups against those elite outside corners, big physical guys that can match his size. 
that's just not a good matchup for him. Was that just in terms of this Colts offense, whether it's you know Shane Steichen or even Gardner Minshew, was that just going to the better matchup across the board for you offensively? Yes, in my opinion, I think that's what it was more about. You know, I like Jeremiah Wusukoromo and Anthony Walker for this Browns team at linebacker, but I think you can pick on them more so than their outside corners. And in Ward, as I mentioned, Greg Newsom's a good player. Martin Emerson's a good player. Those two guys kind of fluctuate between the slot and out wide. But, yeah, I think throwing over the middle and, and targeting Josh Downs. Also, of course, you know, a guy that can create separation quickly – you know, the, the back shoulder stuff or the jump ball stuff or the, you know, even inbreakers, uh, you know, stuff like Michael Pittman, he's not a guy that gets open quickly. Um, and Gardner Minshew knew he was facing this defensive line. I think Josh Downs having a big game made a whole lot of sense. It's hard for me to doubt anything Shane Steichen is doing right now. From what you've seen from the rookie Josh Downs, 125 through the air on five receptions, targeted six times on Sunday. What type of ceiling does he have? You know, I think he is a guy you still do need to create, you know, free releases for. You know, he's not going to be able to get off against press a lot of the time, which you did see some of that in this Cleveland game. They're willing to do that. So it was great that he had, you know, those five monster catches and a touchdown. Um, look, you know, he at the end of the day, you know, he's 5'9", 175 pounds, whatever it is. There's plenty of productive players in that mold. But it limits to a degree, you know, what you're able to do. But I think that is where – you know, a Shane Steichen stepping in can do so much to get him room, make sure no one's bumping him at the line and getting him off his route stem, you know, with sacks and bunches and, and various ways to create free releases for him because if he does get off the line, you know, good luck keeping up with him. He, he is as shifty as anyone in the league right now. So Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I do want to look on the other side of things. Cleveland, that 39-38 win. But what type of issues? I think we know the issues they have at quarterback right now. But what have we now unearthed regarding Deshaun Watson that is absolutely frightening for the longer-term future for this football team? Yeah, it is the scariest thing going. Um, you know, obviously, this massive investment with all fully guaranteed money for the next several years. I want to say this year and three more. I mean, he's playing like one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL, and, and we have enough of a sample now. You know, six games last year, what, four starts now this season. I mean, he was terrible. I mean, the first interception was just a, just a terrible throw. The second one, yes, he took a big shot. But even regardless, if he didn't, you know, yeah, guys bearing down on him had pressure, but – it's not like his arm was hit or anything, and it was five yards short of his receiver right into the defender's hands. Um, he, he, he looks terrible. I mean, I know he's injured, and the sh- throwing shoulder is obviously not an ideal injury for any quarterback to have. Um, but I don't know. I almost wonder if they put him on IR to protect him, protect his confidence, protect his body, what have you. Um, he looks, you know, really, really bad. You know, Jacoby Brissett was better last year in Cleveland than the current version of Deshaun Watson that we're looking at. Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus, with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What's going on with Brock Purdy and the Niners? I think you're really just seeing the regression in some areas that should have been expected. So, you know, all these comments last night, oh, Brock Purdy never puts the ball in danger. You know, it's such a shock he had interceptions. That's why we track things like turnover-worthy plays at PFF. He was fourth in the NFL for us in turnover-worthy throws. Um, So far this season, he just got so lucky with a lot of dropped interceptions, I mean, there was a game where George Kittle basically had a pass breakup and did like a defensive back celebration as a joke. Um, No, he's not very good. And everyone falls in love with the stats and falls in love with the numbers. Here's a perfect stat that illustrates Kyle Shanahan and how incredible he is with all these quarterbacks he's had. Last night, the Niners were down by eight points in the fourth quarter. 
Kyle Shanahan coach teams are now 0-37 when down by eight points or more in the fourth quarter of a game. And, of course, that's not an easy situation to win in, but the quarterbacks that do win those games are the guys that elevate their offense around them, not guys that are just drivers of the Lamborghini. All that said, he still made a bunch of nice throws last night. First half, he was in rhythm. He was finding Brandon Ayuk. He was finding, uh, you know, Jawan Jennings made some nice throws. But when you're when, when he's playing in a bad game script, trailing from behind, that's the guy that we expect. He, he he's not a special talent. He's a good game managing quarterback. Yeah, just yeah, it looks so you know, over two weeks ago so perfect. <laughs> you know, it's this yeah. is how teams would love to be a managing quarterback and all these weapons, and then with the Browns and with the Vikings, all of a sudden that's just all caved in in a two week period. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, and you know, Minnesota without Justin Jefferson and that side of the ball, frankly, surprised me a whole lot more. I mean, got to give a huge shout out to the tackles in Minnesota and Christian Darius on the left side and Brian O'Neill on the right side. It was, you know, for us, one of one of Nick Bosa's lowest-graded pass rush games in years. Uh, you know, Eric Armstead did nothing. Javon Hargrave did nothing. Kirk Cousins had time all day long, had 45 dropbacks, zero sacks, I think like a 10 or 11 pressures total. Um, that was the key. I mean, it, like, he's a guy, if he has time, he's going to make nice throws. Um, that side of the ball surprised me a lot more than Brock Purdy against the Minnesota defense. So, look. They lack talent, but credit to Brian Flores. He's blitzing at an insane rate, a historically high rate, and he's getting the most out of his talent. So, you know, credit to him. Um, but, yeah, the, the Niners' defense needs to figure some things out. To Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus. Let's look around the league right here even more. Ravens impressive 38-6. to I, I don't know if they were more impressive or the Lions were more depressing on the road in Baltimore. But we talked about Todd Munkin um, a couple of weeks ago when the Colts were in Baltimore and your impressions on him and the effect he would have on Lamar Jackson. How much are we seeing that? How much of that game did we see that particular effect? We saw it in every single way. The first half, I mean, they were just dialing up winner after winner. Um, you know, great route combinations of getting guys open in space over the middle of the field, uh, in an inter- intermediate area of the field. Again, we talked about, you know, Josh Downs. Zay Flowers, also a smaller guy, but they were having him in stacks and bunches with, with uh, Odell Beckham Jr., with Mark Andrews. You know, getting him space over the middle of the field. And Lamar is our most accurate quarterback over the intermediate 10 to 20 yards downfield. He's our highest graded quarterback 10 to 20 yards downfield. He was evading pressure and making throws on the move. I mean, I think he put himself in the MVP conversation in that game. Look, Jared Goff was bad. The Lions were bad. But to me, that was more impressive by Baltimore and that offense, you know, than it was, you know, yeah, the Lions look bad. They will bounce back. I'm just now thinking, you know, Baltimore might be the, you know, maybe the second best team in the conference right now. How much of a test was not passed by the Dolphins against a good team on the road on Sunday night in Philly? Yeah, this is an interesting one. You know, I I did worry about, we just talked about game script and Brock Purdy and all that. I did worry about Miami in the same fashion because obviously we've seen them pretty much all year long, except for the Buffalo game where they got blown out, you know, up by a bunch of scores. They can run the ball. Tua can get the ball out quickly. And then when they got down, how can they handle it? And I will say, he obviously had the bad interception in the right corner of the end zone. But a drive that stuck out to me was when they go down 17-3 at the end of the first half, they get a holding penalty, and they're third and 18. And Tua throws a strike to Cedric Wilson, then you know throws the touchdown pass to Tyreek Hill. So, you know, I, I think they actually showed me some good there. You know, no, no Xavier Howard, no Jalen Ramsey, no three starting offensive linemen. I'm not worried about Miami just yet. I think they're just a good team, you know, on the road. 
I obviously here we know what happened um, a little bit after this time of year, you know, and was Frank Reich uh, being cut loose in the middle of the season and Jeff Saturday taking over on an interim basis. Are we going to get something like that this year? Uh, might it go a a Staley angle on this? I think he'll probably finish out the rest of the season, but I know there was you know an article in the Athletic about how he's probably losing the locker room. I frankly wouldn't be too surprised if he was. I mean, you're hired as a defensive coach, and their defense is horrendous. And so, you know, and obviously, you know, some of the decision making in the fourth downs and all that. I think for the most part, it's the correct decisions when he does it. But he also, of course, has some of them where you're scratching your head, wondering what in the world he's doing. And we had you know Keenan Allen tweet last year, like, "What the heck are we doing?" I think there probably is some turmoil starting to build there. So I think he finishes the year. Um, I don't think he's back next season. Yeah, it just it seems like that they are just in you know like a, a treadmill that you just can't get off. Where you're thinking you're going to get there and you just never get there. And, and this team seems like it has so many weapons. Has one of those so-called future elite level quarterbacks. And you know both sides of the football really those those positions that are so coveted they have covered and just can't do anything with it. Yeah, and it's just like it's confusing, you know, what they're even really trying to accomplish in defense, particularly in coverage. Um, like there's games when they play like Miami or a team with a lot of speedsters and they'll be up in press man coverage. And there's, they'll play games where there's more kind of big body guys and they'll sit back in soft zone and let teams throw on them. Like it just doesn't even make sense. Like, yeah, like I don't really understand on a week-to-week basis what they really – I don't know what they see, what matchups they're trying to exploit. It's it, it's bizarre because I think he was a good coach, you know, at some point. I think he was a great defensive coordinator with the Rams, you know, a good position coach for the Bears back in the day. I know Vic Fangio spoke very highly of him. Uh, I just think it's all unraveling at this point, and, and they're just kind of out of answers. It's a Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Where are they according to answers in Buffalo? Was it a little bit too early? for us to jump to conclusions or have some conclusions been made about this disappointing four and three start? I'm worried about them, you know, for sure. I mean, I think when you lose Matt Milano, one of the best linebackers in football, and you have a, you know, I think a third year player and a rookie now playing a lot of the snaps there, you lose Tredavious White. So you have a couple second year corners logging the majority of the snaps, you know, mixed in with some other late round draft picks. And then your starting safeties are both, you know, in their early 30s, um, and you're seeing their lack of, you know, athletic ability pop up on tape a bunch. Um, yeah, their defense concerns me. I mean, Mac Jones had one of the best games of his entire career. There was bad weather conditions, some wind in that game, and he still was throwing it all over that defense. Obviously, had the 75-yard touchdown drive to win it. Um, you know, I think the offense will figure it out. They'll be okay. Bill Belichick does so well against teams that really only have one, you know, pass catcher. And I still feel that way about Buffalo. I think outside of Stephon Diggs, I'm just not impressed with anybody else on that roster. Um, but defensively, I think they're going to have issues against good offenses all year long. Well, you mentioned this. You've got an article out or coming out regarding the trade deadline, which is fast approaching. Kevin Byard yesterday, uh, a guy on the back end defensively from the Titans to the Eagles, as certainly the Eagles get better. Might we see the Bills trying to get a little bit better? And I guess to even play off of that, is this the early stages of Tennessee deciding to go ahead and look to the future? 
Yeah, I'll start with the Tennessee point. Yes, I think there could be more guys on the move. I think DeAndre Hopkins is an interesting name. I don't know if I buy the Derrick Henry thing. I mean, maybe, but Tennessee would have to rework his contract to get another team, you know, take on a big, you know, final year of a deal for a 30-year-old running back. But, yeah, DeAndre Hopkins is interesting. Christian Fulton is interesting. I think Danico Autry, their defensive lineman, is interesting. Um, I don't think they're done yet selling. For the Bills, maybe. I mean, maybe they could make a move. I think adding a speed element at wide receiver could be a decent move for them. You know, maybe a Paris Campbell, your old pal uh, from back in the Colts days, a Terrace Marshall in Carolina. Um, and then I guess on defense as well, it's just kind of hard to, to find corners. Maybe Dante Jackson in Carolina. I mentioned Christian Fulton. Um, so I think a small move for Buffalo, but I don't think they're going to make a splash per se. I mentioned, and I did like Terrence Marshall. Yeah, coming out of LSU years ago, and certainly there's been nothing to show for it in Carolina. Has that been more about him just not being what people like me thought or more about the offensive environment in which he's been surrounded by at the start of his NFL career? Yeah, you know, I think the talent is there. I mean, week four, he had nine catches, and then week five, he played zero offensive snaps. And you kind of you look at his entire usage thus far through, you know, two and a half seasons, and I think he kind of falls out of favor with coaching staffs, and I have no idea why, uh, but that's kind of been the story of his career. It's like when he does play, I mean, last year on, on deep balls, he was a great, great option. You know, he really was um, up there in contested catches, up there in just pure receiving yards on throws 10-plus yards downfield. So he has that athletic ability. I think he's a decent catch-and-run guy as well. You just get the, the vibe of, you know, they draft Jonathan Mingo, they sign DJ Chark. Like, they're always trying to re- replace him in the, in, in the lineup, um, and, and you wonder why that is. But uh, the talent's there. I just can't really answer, you know, the second piece. Uh, could you mine some gold from him with a second chance opportunity at the trade deadline somewhere? I think you could. I really do. I, I've been saying the Chargers should, should consider it, get some more speed now that Mike Williams is out. Uh, maybe the Eagles get a third receiver. Maybe the Jets get some speed element. Now they trade him, Michael Hardman away. I do. I think uh, the change of scenery, maybe he resets his focus, you know, gels more with a different coaching staff and front office. I really do think he could have a resurg- resurgence in his career. Like I said, whenever he plays, he grades well for us. He puts up good stats. Traditionally, he just doesn't consistently play. All right, so coming up in week number eight, is this going to be the week where the Bengals step up and start being more like the Bengals than most people expected this season? I want to say yes, but I, you know, you got a very angry 49ers you do. now coming Losers up. Loses two, two <laughs> yeah. straight. That's probably the worst news for the Bengals. Losers are two straight with the Niners. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, but it's still, though, you got a team off a of bye versus a team that played Monday night. So a pretty massive advantage for Cincinnati there. I don't love the matchup, you know, but – Interesting thing is this pass rush you know, we talked about did not get home at all yesterday, um, and, and so that's still still Cincinnati's kind of biggest weak spot, um, and, and maybe they can mitigate that to a degree. So I do. I think they're going to look better. They're going to be able to throw the football. You get a healthy T. Higgins, a healthy Joe Burrow. We'll see if they win, but I think they're going to start playing You know the, the Bengals brand of ball we've gotten used to the last couple of years. All right, one final thing, too, regarding the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, of course, you know, you know, getting the win and against New Orleans last week to start the week out on a Thursday night. They are 5-2. and two. How close are they right now? It wasn't a pretty performance by any aspect, but still 5-2 and two is legit. How close are they right now to where you expected them to be at the beginning of the season? 
Yeah, I was super high on them. I actually, you know, picked them to have the one seed out of the AFC. That'll probably be Kansas City. I, I frankly think I don't know who's going to beat Kansas City if they stay healthy. I, I think they're just worlds better than everybody else. But but I was super high on the Jaguars, and I think we're seeing a lot of it. Their run defense is the top five unit across the NFL and whatever metric you want to look at. Uh, now that the offensive line is settled in with Cam Robinson and Anton Harrison, the first-round rookie at tackle, both playing good ball. Um, I, you know, I, I think the one thing holding them back is – Right now on scripted drives, which is the first 15 plays of, an, of a game, they are top five in the NFL in you know drive conversion rate into points and EPA per play, all these various metrics. Outside of that script, they're not in the top 20. And, and so I wonder, does Doug Peterson maybe take over play calling duties at some point for Press Taylor? Uh, I know he's an, you know, an old friend of the Colts. Like, I'm not trying to blame him, but it's very glaring when they're remarkable with the script they come up with throughout the week that I'm sure Doug Peterson has a lot to do with, and then they can't move the ball. They had 50 yards before the, uh, the, the Christian Kirk touchdown um, in that game for about a 25-minute game time stretch. They had 50 offensive yards. It's a problem, and it's been plaguing them the entire season. So Brad Spielberger, every Tuesday right here in the 4 o'clock hour with a recap of the previous weekend of NFL. He's with us every week via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Hey, Brad, I appreciate it as always, too, and uh, we'll catch up next week and see what's up. Sounds great. Thank you. Brad Spielberger. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You can watch our good friend joining us now, the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pileline from Valley Sports, Indiana. Jeremiah Johnson being a part of it as you uh, soak up a little hoop and incredible central Indiana spreadability. JJ is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pileline. Have you got yourself a tub of Winchuler spreadable cheese for the family yet? I have not, but it sounds like it needs to be added to my grocery list. It better. It better be. I can't believe you haven't done it already. Well, I've got some time. I'm I'm all focused on Wednesday night, obviously, and a trip to Cleveland this weekend. But I am kind of looking forward to getting you know the two games under our belt and relaxing on Sunday. So maybe I'll get some of that spreadable cheese for uh, Sunday afternoon. Oh, I know you're a fan of spreadability, buddy, and <laughs> there's a lot of spread in that spreadability. You'll love it. You'll love it. <laughs> just want to hear i just want to hear your awkward lack of a response and let everybody soak that up for just a a minute right there i told you i was ready for it on sunday now i'm ready to talk pacers basketball it's good to be back on your show again john it is it is it's been a long time it seems right here um i want to start with with this team getting up and down the floor um because my concern has been this i want to see them get better defensively especially on the perimeter and i I think well you have to for one because they were dreadful last year Uh, but the other thing that i don't want to see is their scoring average their scoring punch falter at all i want it to sustain if not grow especially the way that they play you know and some of these new weapons they have now a part of this team how do you think both sides of the basketball will look especially with a lot of the new pieces they have to this basketball puzzle 
they might both be just a little bit of a work in progress. You would expect the offense to be ahead of the defense just because they have so much continuity and they honestly have so much firepower. And you saw the offense succeed at a, at a high level last season. And the difference would be adding in a guy like Bruce Brown is going to automatically make your team better defensively. And maybe it, it might make your defense take or your defense, you know, improve, but your offense take just a little bit of a step back only because he's not as in sync with that group as, as maybe he was or as that group had with, with other players, and you throw Obi Toppin in the mix as well. So um, my, my way of looking at the first two to three weeks of the season is defense is most important. It's what they talked about from exit interview day all the way until probably today after practice, and they probably want to get to the point where they're not just talking about it, but they're showing some improvement. So can you see some defensive improvement and maybe even offense just be about the same as it was last year, that would be a win, I think, for everybody. But um, the starting lineup specifically and maybe some of the second unit combinations, there might be still some awkward early season moments, even offensively, just because of rotations. I I noticed that a little bit in the second quarter of that last preseason game against the Cavaliers. It was Andrew Nemhard's first game action. And so that five-man combination, playing Buddy Heald off the bench, I didn't think they were as in sync as maybe I had hoped or expected, but I do think that will come. But if early on a guy like Bruce Brown can help them get stops on the perimeter, if he can go out there against Jordan Poole, who we, who we know is probably going to be trying to get 30 every single night, if he gets that defensive assignment and is able to slow him down, and as you often talk about, prevent him from getting that open lane to the basket, that's where the real progress will be made long-term and at the end of the season. J.J., would you foresee if they do struggle compared to what we saw last year offensively out of the gate, would they think about putting Buddy Heald back into the starting lineup as an option? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. It'll be something that'll be worth watching. Um, I, I still think that there's enough of a reason to let Benedict Matherin and Bruce Brown have this opportunity and not be so worried about a game-by-game game, um, you know, lack of offense. Now, what you might see, though, if Buddy Yield has it going like he did, you know, Friday was just a preseason game, so uh, the, who won or lost did not necessarily matter, but I think he hit his first six three-pointers. And so if, that, if he's having that kind of game, then maybe the rotation that you see on the court, the final five minutes, maybe isn't the same as the first five minutes, and that's where you trust Rick Carlisle, the coaching staff. But it's not an... It's not a simple challenge that is in front of that staff to have 15 guys who on another team might be in a a 10-man rotation, and on any night, you're going to be five guys out of the rotation. So you mentioned specifically Buddy Yield. He'll be in that rotation, but if if the form holds from what we saw in the preseason, if he comes off the bench, will he be all right with that? Will he still get the number of shots? There are a lot of different guys to keep happy, and so you hope all the feel-good um, comments you're you're hearing, everything you're seeing with your own eyes and the way they cheer on uh, their teammates during the course of a game, you hope that can continue even from the guys that are maybe at a lesser role than they're used to. And I, I think the positivity of good results, meaning winning, I think that takes away some of the, hey, you know what, I didn't get this much clock in the third quarter or that much clock down the stretch here. I think that takes away some of that argument. Plus, 
if, if they're going to get to 45, as I've predicted, and a lot of people think that I've gone way overboard with that particular prediction, you have to take advantage of this early schedule. I mean, you, you really do. And I know a lot of people go, well, you know, I'll wait for the NBA until Christmas or after Christmas or whatever. From a Pacers standpoint, I think a lot of what we're going to see results-wise at the end of the year will be predicated on how good of a start this group, learning together with one another, gets off to beginning tomorrow night you have that exactly uh accurate i think anyone that would tell you you're not going to start paying attention until christmas you're going to be missing out because a lot will be determined for this team and the direction i think that they want to take even leading up until february by how they start this season i just recorded a podcast with rick carlisle the sideline guys are back uh, that'll be out at some point tomorrow but i asked him if he broke the season in tears and it got me thinking earlier today before I asked that question to how Tony Dungy, remember when he would famously break the season into quarters? And I wondered if, uh, having never asked Rick Carlisle that, if, if he does break the season into parts, does he is he someone that wants to look at the record after 20 to 30 games? But he was quick to note the schedule early on in the season, the number of home games and the opportunity that this team has to get off to a good start. And as he mentioned to us, to play where you have more wins than losses and to be you know, playing from ahead instead of behind in the standings. And and I think that that is front and center in the, the way they're thinking, the way they're coaching, the way they're approaching the season. There is no easing into this season. Uh, it's a completely different mindset and approach than last season where I think they just were uh, wanting to get guys experience, wanting to see what they had and not necessarily worry about the record. They're still not um, particularly focused on a number. But they know where they want to be in April, and to get there, they really have to have a good October and November. We're going to see Andrew Demhart be more of just kind of the floating around guard that we saw him play role-wise as a rookie, or is it going to be more specific to the point guard role? Yeah, I'll be watching that as well. I can't wait to see these games. I'm just bringing hey, I'm at, honestly, I'm asking yeah, a so hell of a lot players. of good questions here. And players and positions that have roles that I'm fascinated to see how they play out because if you would have said maybe in April or May, if you're going to get a guy like Obi Tapp you're going to get Bruce Brown, you're going to try to get Benedict Mather in minutes with the starting group. Um, you could make a case that TJ McConnell maybe goes um, to the third point guard, but TJ McConnell is going to have none of that. And so I think they, um, for good reason, have, have figured out a way that they can play those two guys together. And it'll be times when they're both on the court and you may see McConnell go to the corner. There may be times you see, uh, Andrew Nemhard go to the corner. They both can attack. They can penetrate. That's the important thing about this offense is to get two feet in the paint and then make things happen. So I'm just curious to see, though, how they play together because it was a lot of times last year Nemhard starting, McConnell off the bench. Uh, you know, Nemhard was playing with Halliburton, so he, he can play that two guard, but they know he can be the primary ball handler as well. So uh, I think it'll be a little bit of both. The good news about the NBA right now, it's less about point guard and two guard, even though we clearly know when Tyrese is on the court, he's, he's the guy. But there are a lot of other times it's, it's two primarily, primary ball handlers, and you're able to play that way. So um, I do want to see how Nemhard and McConnell play together, and knowing that they've got a guy like Buddy Heald on the outside to get, get shots. That second unit should 
have an advantage most nights against the opposition. Jeremiah Johnson starts things out coming up tomorrow night. Bally Sports Indiana with the Wizards and the Pacers game number one at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. JJ's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline with us. You know, and, and maybe I'm chief among them right here. You know, the expectations I think we all have for Obi Toppin. I will say this. I, I think that it is soaked in this case with a good angle. One is I think the dude's going to feel like that the restraints are absolutely off here compared to when and how he was able to play in New York. And I'm not suggesting at all that's not a good team and it's not well coached because it is, but I think the style they play is just drastically different and I think that's how he's going to feel. We'll see. The other aspect is too I'm always interested in a second stop like this, especially with a guy that was in New York and had all this as a lottery selection this this greatness here he comes the toast of new york and now you get the opportunity because they gave up on you to get a little bit of payback i, I do i think that that chip of motivation on the shoulder will play a significant role as to why maybe i've kind of outthought this a little bit in terms of my expectations but offensively i think this guy could be the limit for him compared to what we have seen in his new york seasons to this point well, the one thing that we saw in his New York seasons is whenever he played against the Pacers, he looked like the guy that you wanted to see in a Pacers uniform. He had some of his best games. Especially down the stretch last year. Time. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah, those last two games or two of the last three games of the season, he could not miss. He was that stretch four that could run the floor. And the big thing, the style of play for the Pacers play, that benefits Obi Toppin. It's an opportunity where also you know every single year how many good players are coming into the draft trying to take someone's spot. So this is the time for Obi Toppin to prove that what happened in New York, while he was serviceable, he was a rotation player, I don't think he was what he expected from himself or what maybe even Knicks fans had hoped to see with where he was drafted. So he gets this opportunity, and then the one thing that you did not mention that must – must be mentioned is Tyrese Halliburton was a big factor, I think, in going after and acquiring Obi Toppin. And Obi Toppin knows, well, he watched Miles Turner. He's seen some other players really see their game grow by playing alongside Tyrese Halliburton. Nothing against Jalen Brunson, but I just feel like that Tyrese Halliburton's the kind of player that if you're on the court with him, he's your point guard. He's going to make you some money. I mean, he's going to make you a better player. You're going to get better stats. You're going to do everything. Everything is going to get a little bit more. So he'll never have a better opportunity, I don't think, than he has right now. All right, one final question with J.J. regarding, in this case, Miles Turner. We saw last year he had great numbers, you know, obviously got that extension. What do you think his numbers are going to be like this year? Because, you know, we're talking about a lot of players. And, you know, you have a, a great elite-level passer and sharer of the ball in Tyrese Halliburton. But at times it may feel like that you need more than one out there. Numbers-wise, you think Miles will approach or be around what we saw that of miles a year ago i think he can be close to that before last season it was uh, it was crazy to look at his basketball reference and his his stats and how he was about a 12 and 8 or 11.9 and you know 7.8 i mean his averages for the course of the season were nearly identical every single season until last season he had that big jump last season obviously it helped to have Tyrese Halliburton, you know, leading the way and finding him and just to have that clear role as the five, not the five on or the five on defense and, and the four on offense that he had 
for so much of his career. So I see no reason why his numbers shouldn't be the same. Um, the only thing that I'll say is on a night-to-night basis, it's going to be interesting to look down at the box score. And, you know, on our post-game show, we'll put up uh, very early in the show, we'll put up the leading scorers and the first four or five guys. They might change quite a bit. So there might be a night he's got, you know, 18 to 20. There might be a night he has 10. But the one number that I'm going to be watching, and I, I was impressed by this on Friday against Cleveland, is the rebounding. Um, rebounding is very important. Even though we talk all about defense, I think rebounding and defense go hand in hand. But Miles and Obi Toppin both have to get in there and get some boards. Miles can't just, you know, block shots. Yeah. He's one of the best in the world at that, but he also has to be in position to help get some of those rebounds. You need to have a guy like Bruce Brown helping down in there on the glass as well. So while the, the scoring and the rebounding averages are important, I expect them to be probably somewhere in between where he was last season and where he had been in his career, the rebound or the scoring, the rebounding needs to be maybe a higher number. Well, well JJ, I will say this, um, the rebound, the rebounding numbers can be higher if he doesn't have to try to come over and you know pick up everybody's guy that gets lost you know on the perimeter, which which is basically every trip down the floor. And also, I I mean you you get he in the past, and this has always driven me nuts. He will let the guards come down and just kind of all right, they're going to go up and get it because you know they want to get this rebound, add that to their stats. I'm thinking 33, go up and get that. All right, don't let the guards sneak down here and grab this. That's three or four a game. Come on. That's what I'm doing at home. Come on now. Go get that. Hey, Add three I, or four. I want you to start the show. You've already claimed victory. and <laughs> I des- did. Des- deservedly so. I, I think no one can argue that you were right all along, and you hope to just see more of what you saw last season. The other thing that I'll add, though, it, it is I think people, whether there may be fans that you know nitpick certain aspects of his game, you have to have a ton of respect for what he has been through, the different styles, coaches, teammates he's had. He's entering his ninth NBA season with the same team, with the Pacers. He was drafted in the lottery. He's been through so many changes. And to in his eighth season, have his breakout year, his best year, and also increase his leadership role. It really feels like it's Tyrese Halliburton's team, but it, uh, it's almost a 1A, 1B in terms of the leadership and the, the vocal responsibility that Miles Turner is accepting. And so I, I see no reason why – anyone should on a night-to-night basis nitpick about certain numbers in the box score. I think you need to appreciate what Miles does, what he's meant to this franchise, and then the way he's represented. Well, they shut up last year for me, but it'll restart, I'm sure, coming up tomorrow night. So I'm very excited about that part of it. So, he, again, it's his play is what dictated the stoppage of that. So something he's going to have to maintain. And, and JJ, I'll also point out, there were really little to no expectations for this group a year ago, this team a year ago, I should say. Uh, the expectations pushed by me, I'm sure, are made much higher. So that also in terms of if they don't get off to a fast start can lead to a little bit of early disappointment. So here's to having a good first game and a nice start to the season for this group. It is crazy. Opening night is at home against the Wizards, the same as the last season, but it just feels completely different. You know, one year ago, yep. talking with you before a season that I had no idea what to expect. You look at opening night, Andrew Nemar didn't play, and Miles Turner, remember, got well, tripped over the ball boy. The opening tip. Can you imagine? Exactly. Can you so. imagine my Twitter handle when that went down? And even the first two or three weeks, you know, he did the interview with Woj. There was so much uncertainty and everything um, with Miles. But just this whole team is just in a better place right now. Oh, that was fun. You reminded me of all the fun times this time last year. Thanks a lot, JJ. Appreciate it. But the first half of the season, they did show. Think about this. 
They were fifth in the East at the midway point of the season. And if you look at that healthy team to the team you have right now, the two players, like you don't have O'Shea Brissett and you don't have Chris Duarte, you add in Obi Toppin and Bruce Brown, and just by that alone, I mean, to me, that's an upgrade. Well, who was the dumbass that rolled over Halliburton last year in New York? Was it was it Randall or was it uh, Robinson? Who was it? I can't remember. Yeah, the play was so crazy because I was worried that it was his knee, and then it was yeah. his ankle, and it was just it was really hard to know when exactly he was injured. So uh, I do know the person who talked about him after the game. Uh, at some earlier in the season when they played the Knicks, remember we we don't need to bring him up either. Well, the, one of the Wally Zerbiak, <laughs> Wally Zerbiak. <laughs> hey, the, the Pacers Knicks rivalry. Let's say it's back on tomorrow's Pacers Wizards, but I, I do look forward to those games. I appreciate you, man. We'll be watching tomorrow night. Happy to be on again. I hope everybody's watching. We're on the air actually six o'clock, one hour. Yeah. Pacers live pregame, and and even before that, a, a season preview show. So really five thirty. On until about 11 o'clock, wall-to-wall Pacers tomorrow night. Thank you, JJ. Thanks, John. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Andy Moore, Automotive Group, Pylon. This time of year, the schedule is pretty packed. Greg Rakestraw joins us. Where are you going this weekend? Ben Davis in Brownsburg on Friday night. Nice. Soccer State Finals on Saturday, and then uh, hanging with you on Sunday. You... You will get at least one side from Friday night saying, why in the world did this game happen early on in this tournament? One of the sides will be shouting that from the top of the bleachers. What I would say is this, is that it's a little bit different when you're trying to see the sectional that has seven or eight teams or even basketball with six versus a sectional with four. You know, you've got a one in three chance and Ben Davis and Brownsburg now play each other back to back years in the opening round of the tournament. And so, you know, I think if there's going to be change, it probably has to come from the IFCA, the Coaches Association, really pushing on the IHSA to say, okay, if we're going to seed this, do you want to seed this for, say, classes 1A through 4A uh, that have, uh, you know, seven or eight team sectionals, and do you do this differently in 5A and 6A? Do you open it up where if you want to seed it, you have to travel a bit further. Are schools willing to trade seating for tacking on a few miles on bus trips? So I think those are the hurdles that have to be cleared before we get to seating in terms of football. Greg, do we have any other games of that magnitude that also could be used as an argument when the game's over? Bloomington South and Bloomington North, the exact same rankings in 5A. And again, you've got a four-team sectional, so you've got a much better chance of drawing each other in the opening game. Uh, you know, once you get to one through four A, you've got big matchups like Garen and Chittard, but those two teams had to win to get to see each other, and there is still another undefeated team in the other half of that sectional in terms of Hamilton Heights. So it's those two games in five A and six A that will draw the most attention. Hey Greg, how are the, the drawings held? Do you know how in do they terms, do that? Basically you yeah. assign a there's ping pong balls you assign a number to each school, and you would say, all right, one plays four, two plays three. 
and that's how it's done. So there is the ping pong ball that is in the studio where we film, we as in the IHSA, where we film all of the pairing shows, and those get drawn out, and that's how it happens. Like you guys do beer pong or something like that in there? Something along those lines occasionally. We, we don't record that part of the job. One of the uh, one of the greatest things ever, and I, I don't know if this has stood the test of time, you may have gotten that type of storyline and treatment in southern Indiana too at Lanesville, but one of the best things would always joke about how one specific team in your sectional would always get over with the bye and everybody else felt they were getting screwed. I always thought that that added to the legend and the great conversation that was basketball or even football in this case. Well, again, for the, for those that, that want seating, I understand the argument. I'm not so sure I disagree with you. Okay, The counterpoint would be the school that has had a rough year that now, because everybody gets in, and I do think it's important that everybody gets in, that has helped grow this sport over the last 40 years since that decision was made back in 1985. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a local example. Okay, It's been kind of rough years for Avon and Pike. Now, Avon has played better over the course of the last couple of weeks of the season. They've got some momentum heading in. But I guarantee you the outlook has been different for each of those two teams because they drew each other and said, hey, we had a chance to win and make a sectional championship. And so for that team that does get the benefit of the draw, they'd be a little something more you know, to look forward to. And again, if we're going to have the seeding debate, you know, Ben Davis and Brownsburg will get a vote. And so, too, will Avon and Pike. And so I'm very curious to see if the entire populace of the IHSAA says at some point in time, whether it's now, five years from now, a decade from now, or long after we're gone, if everybody says, all right, let's seed this, because, again, there's some years it's going to benefit you, and there's some years that it's not, and would you get a majority of schools to say, let's go for seeding? I'm not sure that would be the case. He is a Greg Rakestraw on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Another Friday night of playoff football is on the way. Fishers and Hamilton Southeastern in Sectional 3 uh, matched up with a couple of Fort Wayne area schools. Is this a collision course, or would Northrop and or Homestead be legitimate contenders or maybe even a favorite in one case? Not this year. No, it's Fishers and HSC. Um, you know, Northrop is kind of the third of the six A's in the Fort Wayne area. Carroll would be the other. Uh, that would be up there. Carroll and HSC played each other in the semi-state game last. I think a lot of folks at HSC was going to make it, and Carroll kind of surprised them to make the state championship game. And just because of the way the numbers work, Carroll gets shoved towards South Bend uh, just because there's, there's so many fewer six A schools in Fort Wayne and South Bend that they kind of get sent north uh, or west in, in this case. But, no, I, I, you know, the, the, the team outside of the Indy area, and there, frankly, are so few of them now, that play 6A. The one that's probably set to make the deepest run is Crown Point. Um, being in the Doolin Conference, they play a lot of really good 5A schools. There's not much in the way of 6A competition up there for them. Penn is good, but but maybe not what they were five, 10, 15 years ago at this point. So, no, I would think you're looking at a Mudsock rematch in the championship game next Friday night. Hey, Greg, you and I talked about this last week, and I also furthered that conversation with Bob Lovell last Friday. It seems like Greenfield Central's having a sports renaissance going on right now with high-level play and high-level talent. But you get New Pal coming up at 7 o'clock on sectional 22 on Friday night. And granted, New Pal's not the New Pal of the past, but legit, no doubt about that. Well, New Pal is still 7-0 against their conference, and including Greenfield Central. 
I want to say that game was week number five, week number six. I'm not sure which one it was. What I do know is that it was 21-14, and it was 14-14 in the fourth quarter of that game, and New Pals scored late. And so the kids from Greenfield Central are talented. Obviously, as the game that I had last week, they ran for 360 yards against a good but a bit of a beaten-up Cumberland Heights team. Um, Greenfield Central will not lack for motivation in that game against, against New Pal. I can tell you that. Sometimes when you are trying to overturn a decade of dominance like New Pal has had against everybody in that league, you're kind of playing against history. You're almost kind of playing against shadows at times. And if Greenfield can, off to, can get off to a good start, I think that's paramount for that game at New Pal. It will not be easy, but it is possible for Greenfield Central to pull the upset on Friday night. Um, how bad is this football season bid collegiately in the state of Indiana? I, and, and Notre Dame, I guess, notwithstanding. But when, right. when you look all the way around, uh, it's not been much to write home about. Uh, the, the good thing is I get to deal in the world of small college football, and so life's pretty good. Marion hasn't lost. UND hasn't lost. I literally was over at Wabash. We're two and a half weeks away from the Monon Bell game on the ISC Sports Network, so Wabash has had a good year. DePaul hasn't lost a game yet. Rose Holman could win their league in the HCAC, but your point is well made in terms of the schools that typically people are tracking. And we know how bad it's been at Indiana. We kind of thought it might be a bit of a step back in Ryan Walter's first year at Purdue. It has been. You know, Ball State just got their first FBS win last weekend. Obviously, your your trees are battling, man. They're they're not they're not your typical winless team. They just have an absolutely brutal schedule. I mean, they hung with the number six team in FCS football. It was a seven point game with five minutes left to go. Just couldn't generate enough offense because they had to use four different quarterbacks because of injuries. At, at times this year, but um, at the at the FBS and FCS level, the best way to describe the football season is uh, the basketball season is about to tip off. That's the best way to describe the football season. <laughs> yeah, I, I, let's talk about the Sycamore basketball team, Josh Shirts this season. What do, you, what do you think they're capable of? I think fourth in the Missouri Valley, from what I've seen preseason wise. Right. Obviously, you're, you're flipping a lot of guards, um, and it's much easier to flip a roster in the transfer portal. Um, Josh Schertz is very well thought of in the coaching community. Um, when, when you hear a coach say he runs a lot of good stuff, and, and I hear that from coaches about him, uh, and I've seen it with my own eyes, um, the biggest recruiting win that they had this year is they kept Robbie Avila, the 6'10 big kid that, that wears the specs. Um, he really has some potential. And that is now the issue that you fight at that level. Think about Peyton Sparks at Ball State. Had a really good couple of years now playing at Indiana University. And so you almost feel the need. You have to, like, re-recruit your own kids every year. Avila stuck around for at least one more year. That's a big thing. It'll be tough to replace some of the scoring and the guard play they had last year, even if they're going to have a true point guard. You know, Cooper Neese kind of played that role really not what he's best suited for, but he did it and did a great job with it. So they've got some turnover deal with Indiana State, but knowing they kept their best big man, I think that gives them a chance to have a very successful season uh, for Coach Shirts and Terre Haute. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no more Covassier either. So You can no longer pass it to Covassier as oh, I tried awesome. to work in. What a great name. And television calls as best I could. But did, did he go anywhere to play overseas? I'm assuming so, but I don't know for sure. Huh. So I, I can't can't tell you that. Manual kid, right? Was he not? 
Correct. Played yeah. at Manual and went to Lincoln Memorial, and that's where he and Coach first ran across each other. Then he he transferred up to DePaul in the Big East and probably found what was what his his level was in the Missouri Valley Conference. All right, uh, Friday night all this weekend. You're busy, right? I am busy. It is that time of year. You accurately depicted it. The crossover season, like literally, I've got my first basketball game a week from Monday. So uh, the busy time is here, my friend, and I wouldn't have it any other way. All right. I don't know. Does that mean the uh, Saturday night phone calls are going to be few and far between? No, believe it or not, I've got two afternoon games on Saturday. uh, So I'll be calling you relatively early on the show. And instead of making some sort of joke about the factory, at least having to go back to it, my shift will be over. So I may have Amy call you, and I may have her designated driver. I might be half blitz when I call you on the show <laughs> on Saturday. We've got but the. I, I do. I do have my, a Halloween theme nice. song picked out for you. Well, it's the uh, Sammy Terry Halloween party we have coming up on Saturday night too. The annual Sammy Terry, Terry Halloween party. He actually <laughs> called in two weeks ago on his way home from Columbus. <laughs> not not the original one, right? The current one. Because if the original one called in, yeah, right, that's right, a little more newsworthy. No, yeah. it, uh, yeah, it is uh, the the sequel, and the sequel is doing a hell of a job. It, 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 so it, it is son of Sammy, correct? Yes, is correct. The way that works now. Yes. Okay. Yeah, ho- holding up the legacy and holding it up strong is what's happening there. So I I, I do have again. I'm, I'm not trying to tip my hand because I don't have people. People hear this conversation on Tuesdays and like marking their calendar. I'm going to call in on Saturday. That's how big of a deal it is. That's uh, you know full on sarcasm, folks. Hope you can detect that. But I do have a game plan already for when I call the show on Saturday night. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that too. Hey, by the way, before I let you go, did you get a lot of blaming the officials' calls in the post game show on Sunday? I did, and, and I'll be honest with you, John. I, I led and said this. I've been doing this for 12 years now. That's probably the most direct impact from yes. a call or two at the end of the game that I have ever had to deal with on the postgame show. Now, I was quick to say, listen, if the Colts hang on to the football a bit better, if they handle the last three or four minutes of the, of the second quarter better, we're not having this conversation. But it is still fair to say that a couple of bad whistles – potentially took that game away from the Indianapolis Colts. So we probably talked more or pointed more towards officiating on this on that show than any of the ones I had done in the last 11 and a half years. Yeah, they 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 did. They had that one. I'm sorry. I, the, the worst one was the one that actually cost them the game and that was the the illegal contact one. So Right, right. Because obviously the game's over at that yeah, point. Over. And that's a, that's a timing call, but I, I I actually thought the worst call was the second one. And even if you're going to call, say, holding and not pass interference, now you're putting the ball down at the three- or four-yard line versus the one, and that's an entirely different series of plays. And given after that misfit on the run on the first drive and the way that the Browns were running the ball after that point in time, I'm not sure the Browns are scoring from the three- or four-yard line with four plays left to go with one timeout. Well, they barely crossed the plane where they were. Right. So right. He, he got he, he literally got half the ball on the on the goal line. That was it. So both those calls were, uh, I thought, bad. The second one was egregiously so. Greg Rakestraw's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, buddy. That's uh, Greg Rakestraw via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. 